and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia, a 10-part podcast mini-series with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite, Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. It's June, y'all, and in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding their amazing volunteer work that the Dysphagia Outreach Project does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And today's episode is dedicated to dysphagia in the NICU. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest, the Casey Lewis, MSCCC, SLP, CNT, CLC, NT, MTC. And I feel like you need to drum roll. Ta-da! <laughs> so, hi, Casey. <laughs> Yay! Hi! <laughs> Thank y'all for entertaining this idea and and collaborating for this project. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's such an honor. I just wanted to speak for all of us. And we're, you know, when we found out about this opportunity, we had, you know, many of us had, had tears running down our cheeks. It's just super encouraging. And I appreciate the opportunity to continue supporting these individuals and families that we all care so much about in this mission and this nonprofit that we care so much about. So I just wanted to publicly thank you. And it means so much to all of us. The world needs good and we can do good. We can do hard things and we can do it well. Oh, you made my Irish eyes leak. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So before we jump into dysphagia in the NICU, can you uh, briefly talk to me about what is your role with the Dysphagia Outreach Project and how did you get involved? Sure. So uh, again, my name is Casey Lewis. I live in Texas. My role is to get the, our mission out there and spread the good news about what we're doing and to connect with other organizations and people that can continue getting the word out there so that we can support others that and families that need our help. I got involved initially actually After connecting with Hillary Cooper, who is one of our co-founders and president of Dysphagia Outreach Project, and I was doing my fees competencies with her in Louisiana a few years ago. I own my own mobile fees company. I just wanted to disclose that called TechScope, and uh, I went to Hillary to get my competencies completed. And I remember sitting in the car with her, and she was telling me about this dream she had, and I was just like, "Wow, that's incredible!" And I want to be a part of it whenever it comes to fruition. And, you know, we just kept becoming friends outside of being colleagues. And she she um, invited me to serve on the board. And it's just been such an honor since then. But that's how things work in life is networking, building connections and friendships. And it's just something that I pour my heart into. It's ours every week. And as you guys may know, it's a volunteer run organization. None of us get paid for any of this. That means we're passionate about it and it means so much to us. But that is how I got started. Awesome. Yes. And I got pulled in because Sarah was at Short and Sweet Speech, sent me an Instagram message and she's like, hey, you want to volunteer? And I was like, sure. Let me finish the book and quit drowning and then I'm game on. And so like, <laughs> final edits are done. It is sent out for last review. I can have no more comma splices. It was like, word, let's do this now. <laughs> so, And then I panicked and was like, well, how can I actually volunteer? What am I good at? And I was like, I have the gift of gab. <laughs> so that's that's my con- contribution to the world of speech pathology. Right. And oh, it's a huge contribution and a blessing. And I also want to thank Sarah. So Sarah and I work together and I, I lead all of our social media initiatives. And Sarah is our Instagram manager. And my goodness gracious, she is so talented and just such a gift to all of us. And she's she just has really helped improve our messaging on that platform. So Sarah, you're amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yay. Beautiful. Okay. All right. So then let's go into it. You're in the world of swallowing and swallowing breakdowns, i.e. dysphagia. You kind of start at the very beginning. 
And that's pretty awe-inspiring. So what does feeding development look like for the fragile infant? Can, can we start at the, the very beginning? Yeah. So I think what I'll speak to is just the development of suck, swallow, breathe in utero. And so, you know, research varies as humans, we vary, but as a general statement at approximately 12 weeks, a baby starts swallowing in his, in utero and swallowing amniotic fluid. So that's early, right? And so that means that baby is practicing that activity in mother's womb. And then around 13 to 20 weeks, an infant begins sucking in utero. And around 32 to 33 weeks, you start to see rhythmical sucking emerging, which that means sucking with the rhythm. And then around 34 weeks, we start to see emerging suck and swallow pattern relationship, which also many NICUs start oral feeding around this period. But... This is like, but in bold letters, (laughs) neurodevelopmentally, right? But suck, swallow, breathe does not become well-established until about 40 weeks gestational age. So that means term or due date or even post-due date for some of our super fragile infants. I always try to express this to parents, especially because... Just because a baby is 37 weeks doesn't mean that they're going to be taking all of their bottles by mouth or taking all of the breasts by mouth. Breast is always first. By the way, I want to highlight that. We encourage, I always, you know, I'm a lactation counselor. I always support that first, but it doesn't mean that a baby is going to be able to do that successfully, especially given any comorbidities, meaning other complications that the baby might have, especially breathing or respiratory complications. But That is pretty much how it starts. And I also want to highlight that whoever's listening, there are about six pairs of cranial nerves, 31 pairs of muscles in in the act of swallowing, and it's super highly dependent on respiratory health. This is like my soapbox about breathing and swallowing, which I'm sure we'll navigate as this conversation continues. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I had two preemies. And y'all, I can speak to this firsthand as a mom. My first one was a 36-weeker after labor was stopped seven times. And I had several weeks of bed rest. He was 36 on the day. He was six pounds, five ounces. He came out screaming, hungry, mad, and latched instantly. And I know the blessing that that is, right? To piggyback good modeling, full disclosure, I'm also a CLC. So I know that that's not as always typical. My other one, Bear, was a 35-weeker after labor was stopped 14 times and had to fight to keep him in because he is headstrong. And he struggled to latch. He also had comorbidities. Uh, we went through the air digestive tract issues. He's And, and he had all of the things, Right. Right at birth, we didn't know that. I mean, he went straight to the NICU, blah, blah, blah. But for some children, they can do it. And some children do need time. And you need to give permission to the parents that fed is fed is fed. And alternate means in GGJ, whatnot. They serve a purpose because the little one will not grow and be ready for learning if they're not nourished. So super mommy soapbox. (laughs) In the utero, when you were talking about starting out at 12 weeks, by then, our little ones that have cleft palates, those are cleft palates, cleft lips that's already started forming or has, I guess, technically it would be in reverse. It did not properly form. So do you see a lot of craniofacial clefts in the NICU? I do. I mean, I would say that ebbs and flows. I think last year I saw the most. And then this year I haven't seen many. But yes, I do see them and I'm going to be the first line of defense usually because a lot of times these babies are born term actually, and they might just be found right after delivery. They don't even know they're there. So then I'm coming in to help mom and dad establish a feeding plan for their baby with, I partner with, we have other lactation specialists in the hospital, especially on the mom baby floor. So that's the floor where mom and baby are together. They're not in the NICU. So we would partner together to establish a feeding plan for that family. Is your hospital one of the baby friendly hospitals? It's it's a really hard certification to get, 
but those facilities do place a significant emphasis on breastfeeding. And I just think that's wonderful. So also kudos to you. That's quite the accomplishment for your facility. (laughs) Okay. So talk to me about progression with feeding in the NICU. And I do want to hear all about the pulmonary respiratory stuff. When I'm trying to connect with a parent or a caregiver that is navigating this situation, especially for the late preterm infant, I pull out a picture of the brain. Actually, I use this all the time because I think it's great visual feedback for the parent to process and understand more what I'm saying rather than just using my words. But maybe they're going through such a hard time that they're not really hearing me. But research has shown that on average, a baby's brain at 35 weeks only weighs two thirds of what it will weigh at 30 nine to 40 weeks. So when I show that picture of the brain from a 35 week brain to a 40 week brain, it really helps these parents understand, okay, wow. And I always tell them, don't be scared. This, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to help you understand to, you know, give your baby some time and some grace because we're not supposed to be here yet. We're not supposed to be taking a bottle or taking the breast. And showing that really helps them take a step back and feel like they can breathe typically. So I would encourage you to do that if, or if you're in the NICU and you're not doing that, just to use that as a strategy to help form that connection because it will help, I hope. And for the postpartum moms, pictures help because normally we're on drugs and there's meds going through our systems. Also, we just bled like a lot and words are hard. (laughs) So having the visual imagery, I can attest that that would have been very helpful, especially when your tiny human's connected to a lot of tubes and wires. Well done, fam. Well done. Now, you and I have had other conversations and you talk about how you utilize the non-nutritive suck the power of the non-nutritive suck. Can you talk and describe about what that is and how you use it, especially for the preterm infants? Sure. So there are two methods of sucking. A non-nutritive suck is where baby is essentially sucking on a previously pumped breast, like a mom. So we're not expelling any milk. And then, or baby is sucking on a pacifier. And there are so, so, so many benefits of that. One being that it helps baby regulate. And when I say regulate, it helps baby calm because the point is to support sleep. I want to be very open about that. That in the NICU, one of my primary goals as a neonatal therapist is to help baby rest and digest and support sleep because when baby is nourished, and can sleep, that's where baby's brain grows. Non-nutritive sucking helps baby decrease his or her heart rate and improves oxygenation. And then also we'll see changes in certain hormones in the baby. So we will utilize non-nutritive sucking during tube feeding. So that's when there's a tube placed through the nose or the mouth to help baby establish some form of nutrition if baby is not able to complete all of his or her bottles by mouth or breastfeeding by mouth or it's not safe to do so yet. So we will see a decrease in a hormone called somatostatin and an improvement in the GI tract. And this helps babies essentially grow. And obviously this could be a more complex conversation, but I think if you want to look up also gastrin and somatostatin, those two hormones, because it helps baby's GI tract mature and it helps baby absorb nutrition and it helps baby grow. So those are also some benefits of non-nutritive sucking. I use it constantly. If I'm bottle feeding, I have a pacifier nearby. And I want to be very clear about the use of a pacifier in the, in the NICU population. It's not a bad thing. It is a way to help baby establish feeding. And this is my perspective. I think it's important because non-nutritive sucking is before nutritive sucking, but Non-nutritive sucking does not mean that baby's going to do fantastically or fantastic with nutritive sucking, which is sucking for nutrition. But it's important because it helps baby kind of regulate and calm. And so when I'm helping a baby navigate the bottle and baby needs a break, I'll redirect with the pacifier. I don't know, maybe five to 10 seconds and let baby kind of dry swallow and clear if there's anything in the airway, just clear it and calm down and regulate and get his or her arms and legs back to midline and calming and then reintroduce the bottle. 
And so I, I just wanted to bring that up because it is kind of sometimes a heated topic of the use of pacifiers. But when you're in the when your baby's trying to learn how to eat, it's not the worst option. There is a, a means to an end. The obvious complications are when it's used for a prolonged amount of time and there is a time to take it away. And but that's where the issue arises. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So NICU grads transitioning to the world of home health. Y'all, same thing. If you have a patient that's getting alternate means, if we're on G-tube feeds or if we have an NG tube because they're just biding a little bit of time over, exactly what she said. There is a purpose for a pacifier or a binky. My dad called it the plug because I'm the oldest of five. There was always a tiny human around and he was like, that one's hollering. Just give him the plug. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. But a typically developing three-year-old, that's when we're worried about the pacifier and their mouth causing, you know, future orthodontist spills and changing the shape of the palate and those factors. And then I'll give it one last caveat for our patients that have significantly altered life trajectories because of the severity of their diagnosis. If you have a six-year-old that is functioning like an infant, if they enjoy a pacifier and it's comforting and they still don't know how to roll over or hold their head up, first and foremost, do no harm and bring comfort. So, I mean, their trajectory is different and that's just, I personally feel that it's good to have guidelines, but there are exceptions. So pacifier, do you ever dip them in express breast milk to kind of transition from the non-nutritive to the nutritive? And have you seen the pacifiers that have the medicine bottles on the back of them? It looks like a tiny shot glass attached to the pacifier. Yeah, I have seen that. So yes, I do utilize them for taste. I wanted to also go back to the the animal that might be on the back of a pacifier. It's concerned for infection control in the NICU and then also concerned because it's going to change the way the infant learns how to suck because there's a weight on there. And so there is, a, you know, certain pacifiers that are best. We typically use the ones that are around round shape as much as possible, like a soothie because it helps with the shape of the palate and the cupping of the tongue. So there are certain pacifiers clinically are going to be better than the others, but especially don't, don't put that weight on the back of the pacifier for our babies that are trying to learn how to eat. I also, you know, want to start from the beginning. So the beginning of oral feeding is in my eyes is teaching parents how to help baby touch his or her face as well as the staff. So the baby is learning pleasurable touch around his face and also teaching staff and family how to perform oral care and the best way to do that. And it's obviously very different than with our adult counterparts. We want to be utilizing breast milk as much as possible. And if it's possible to utilize a syringe and place it in the cheek for absorption, a very small amount because it has benefits for minimizing infection and improving the baby's immune system and also babies getting a taste. And then if there's debris in the mouth, like dry secretions, you can use this tiny oral swab. But the point is not to scrape the cheeks or the tongue because there's fragile mucosa there that the baby actually needs. And we don't want to be, you know, doing that early on, especially if the the swab has mint flavor or anything like that on it. It needs to be as non-invasive as possible. So it starts with helping baby learn how to touch his or her face, help parents and staff know that touching the face and the lips like is serious and you have to be gentle. And then performing oral care therapeutically, sucking on the pacifier. And then next step would be pacifier with breast milk on it. If baby's not getting breast milk, okay, taste of formula, but the goal is always breast milk. And I kind of have a pattern that I'll do. Typically, I'm doing cares if mom and dad's not there. I'm doing cares with the nurse. I help baby suck on the pacifier. And once stability is demonstrated, meaning that baby's heart rate is within normal range, we're not, you know, bouncing all over the place. We're not having apneas, which is a, a pause in breathing or bradycardia, which is a drop in heart rate. We are demonstrating some kind of stability and as well as 
ability to maintain his or her own temperature. I might start taking baby outside of the isolate, if which is the incubator, and help with just therapeutic holding outside of that it, during the tube feeding. And then if we tolerate that, I might transition to therapeutic holding with pacifier, the use of the pacifier or non-intrusive sucking. And then I transition into dips during the tube feeding. And that is what that process looks like to me. And then after that, or actually in between that stage is when I'm kind of doing the, or I'm suggesting mom to be doing nuzzling. Some people call that dry breastfeeding, where basically baby is sucking on mom's previously pumped breast. And maybe that's during a tube feeding as well. And, and when mom's not there is what I'm doing to taste. So I want to make sure I'm highlighting the mom and baby are number one in this picture. I am not mom. If, if mom is there, I'm not going to be doing pacifier dip. I don't come first there. I come first in education. So a lot of my job, I've gotten asked this before, like, how much are you just educating? I'm like, I don't know, probably at least half. And I'm, I'm telling mom, like, this is what you do. This is what you can control right now. And I need you to do this. And so when mom's not there, then I'm doing the taste. So I hope that set up a kind of chronological order of what I typically do. Yes. Okay. Folks, within our scope of practice for speech pathologists, counseling falls within that framework. Okay. Within the world of early intervention, we have a significant body of literature that talks about routines-based intervention and parent coaching. You empower the parent or the caregiver with the tools that you have, that you know, and you're teaching them and guiding them. That's just what Casey described. When she is talking them through their steps and their process, the daily routine is feeding or working towards feeding, and she's coaching them and how to do that. And that is absolutely fundamental across the life span to what we do. Our adult patients... Their daily routine is also eating, and we have to be able to coach their caregivers, spouse, daughters. We have an adult patient who has his own grown mother taking care of him at my university clinic, and that coaching and the ability to coach well, that's a very steep learning curve, but opens so, so many doors. You were talking about the importance of connecting the tube feed to nuzzling at the dry breast and That's key because y'all, she's reconnecting the brain, mouth, and the gut and telling them that they all work together because for our little ones, if they don't start regrouping that, then all of a sudden their belly is full, but they don't understand how it got full. I mean, how would you feel if you just woke up and all of a sudden you had a belly full of food and you have no idea how it got there? That would be a little concerning. You're breaking that piece down and reconnecting. That lays the groundwork for so much healing so that it doesn't evolve into a pediatric feeding disorder. So thank you for being very specific on that. Yeah. So like when I write my note, I'll say this was completed to help improve the association of sucking, swallowing, and the sensation that baby's getting full because that's the ultimate goal, just like you said. Okay. So I had a couple questions. When you're working with these little ones, what about if they have asymmetry or paralysis or paresis from like stroke? Do you have to go about it slightly different in your plan of care to reconnect? What what does that impact look like on those first feeds? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. And so we had discussed previously the difference in level three and level four NICU. So basically a level four NICU can do surgeries. And so a baby that has had a stroke has typically been transferred out in my position. So I typically not treating those infants, just a full disclosure, they've already been transferred to level four NICU because of that finding and maybe they're going to need surgery. And so that's why they would transfer. Every surgeon has their own parameters for when the baby can have surgery. I mean, in my understanding, it ranges from six to 12 months. I, you know, that could be different in your area of the country or wherever the surgeon is, but I am there to help establish a feeding plan and get baby with the correct bottle and the correct flow rate or help mom breastfeed as much as possible. It's obviously a bit more complicated when an infant has a cleft palate rather than a cleft lip due to the decrease in suction abilities. But at that point, you know, I, I, 
we connect with the surgeon and hopefully I'm speaking to that surgeon or speaking to that SLP. I will say that the group that we connect with that SLP does typically follow up with me just to say kind of what's going on. And then if I hopefully can speak to the surgeon in passing at least, but definitely the speech pathologist. I don't see them after surgery or, you know, I'm seeing them before all this is happening because infants typically too, too little to have the surgery yet. That's just huge knowing that they have those options. There are variations in the NICU. Casey was gracious enough to come on first bite back in May. So like a month ago. And she explained very eloquently the differences. I've seen the Medela, the pacing bottle. Talk to me about your bottles that you keep in the hospital. I think as clinicians, we have preferences and I have a preference for a certain bottle. And I just want to make sure that you guys know that this isn't the end all be all answer. And if you prefer something, go for it. I support you. But I'm typically utilizing the Dr. Braun specialty feeder for these families and these babies. Number one, that the flow rate is easier to manage because you know what nipple the baby's utilizing, you know, that is well supported in research in terms of flow rate. And then it also looks just like a typical Dr. Brown's bottle. So mom and dad don't have the feeling that, you know, their baby needs something different than their their best friend who just had a baby who's the same age. And now my baby, you know, it, it just helps with that as well. So that I'm typically using the specialty feeder. We do keep other options in stock in the event that one doesn't work for a certain baby. And that's important. There's not a, a an answer for every, all of us are not going to respond to one product or one treatment strategy, but that's typically one that I'm utilizing consistently. So the very first time I showed that to some students, the difference in the little one-way valve in there, if you haven't seen this, it's not something that you can just find on the aisle at like Target when you go to spend your Saturday morning sipping coffee and walking around Target, right? You normally have to like order the inserts, but it prevents the milk from going back into the bottle and it keeps the milk right in the surface of the nipple. And it's fantastic. If you've never seen it, I would purchase it, flip it upside down. I kind of explain to the students, like I prime the nipple to show them. And then when you just squeeze the nipple, it just shoots straight up. Within Dr. Brown's themselves, they have different level nipples. So can you talk to us about the different types of nipples and or just different flow rates in general and how you make selections on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So Dr. Brown's has ultra preemie, preemie, newborn, level one, and so on. So before I get into the complexities of which nipple I, I go with, I think it's important to understand what goes on when a baby's sucking. So there's two, there's two important components of sucking. There's suction, which is the negative intraoral pressure that's going on during sucking. And then there's also compression, which is stripping of the nipple or removal of the milk, removal of the, what would be the bolus. And with our infants who are experiencing a cleft palate, they are typically going to have compression only sucking, which is kind of like the chomping on the bottle. We have to have a a chomp and a pullback, a chomp and a pullback. I wish I could show you my hands right now because I'm doing it. But those infants are having compression only sucking. So that's why, as you were saying, with the specialty feeder, you just compress it and the milk comes out because it meets them where they are. In terms of selecting a nipple, we have Dr. Brown's on stock. First of all, they support dysphagia outreach project. So I, I want to thank them for doing that because by doing that, they're supporting the babies and the families that need the assistance and help. But we also have other bottles and other nipples on stock. And there are benefits to that because, like I said, one nipple is not going to be the answer for every baby. And With any bottle that is reusable, you have to be very wise about your infection control procedure, meaning how you're cleaning the bottle. And I, Dr. Browns does encourage these hospitals to have a certain guideline on cleaning. And a lot of times that as a NICU therapist, that is sometimes a reason why hospitals are not, not open to getting the bottles, but they will provide you 
the Dr. Brown's Medical will provide you with examples of cleaning policies utilized at different hospitals across the country to help give you a basis. So I just wanted to, you know, encourage that and explain that process because you have to clean these bottles correctly or you're going to get yourself in a, a muddy situation. If these babies are on higher levels of respiratory support, which we will discuss in a little bit, and I have done pacifier dips as long as I can. This is where it gets complicated. But this is, I'm going to use the Dr. Brown's Ultra Premium Nipple because, first of all, pacifier dips. I'm telling the providers and the medical team that this is oral nutrition. This is a form of a baby eating. Baby is getting, is eating right now. We may not for the bottle, but this is oral nutrition. I always call it that. Otherwise, it's not going to be well heard throughout the medical team. And then if the baby's on higher levels of respiratory support and I've done everything I can, they're saying, Casey, it's time to PO, which means eat by mouth. We've got to get going. Okay, I've done everything I can. Like I have to remind myself, I've done everything I can as a specialist in swallowing and a specialist in neonatal development to protect this baby as long as I can. At the end of the day, I have to respect and support the providers that I work under. And we don't always agree, but I'm going to give them the ultra premium nipple because that is the slowest flow, the slowest drip that the baby that I have access to. And so it's, it's, you know, the Dr. Brown's bottle systems have been shown time and time again by research that they are very consistent in their drip, which forms predictability for our babies, meaning they're going to know how much milk is coming at them when they swallow. They're not going to be, you know, getting some milk and then a crazy amount. So I will use, utilize the Dr. Brown's ultra premium nipple and it's a myth out there. If you're listening and you need to hear this or you need to feel like you are not alone, a baby can go home on an ultra premium nipple. I don't know why that's a thing, but it's real. In my world, it's a thing that, oh, so they have to use this flow rate nipple because they're now this old. And I'm like, no, that is that is not actually what that means at all. And when you were talking about how important it is to clean it, it's very confusing on the parent side just cleaning some of those products in generals. I remember when we got to the sippy cup stage with Goose, like, you know, several years ago, eight years ago now, I didn't realize that they broke down, like the silicone nipple popped out of one of the sippy cups. Y'all, I'm an SLP who gave her toddler a sippy cup, but I got white carpets and I did not want to have to give Stanley Steamer any more money to come clean the carpets. So like... But you know what? They can grow mold if you don't know how to take them apart appropriately. Luckily, I had a younger sister who had a little boy older than mine, and I learned. But case sirrah, mold is frowned upon. Infection control in a living room. <laughs> Talk to me about the respiratory support. So Dr. Louisa Ferrara, who is a speech language pathologist, I have so much respect for her. And every time I speak on this topic, I always want to highlight her because of her research. She is improving the lives of babies, but also the lives of speech pathologists in the NICU. So we have written literature that is supporting our thoughts. But there is high flow nasal cannula and CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure. And the use of high flow nasal cannula, which is a nasal cannula in the nose. There's also essentially a low flow nasal cannula, but the use of high flow nasal cannula is a more recent in the NICU since there's a more widespread availability of other forms of respiratory equipment besides intubation, besides the ET tube. So it allows for a more flexible delivery of flow rates, meaning how much flow is coming out of the cannula of air rather than oxygen concentration. So room air is 21%, but it allows for more flow through the nose, which CPAP is typically, there's a mask over the nose or prongs in the nose. So I want to make sure if you don't work in the NICU, you don't see that CPAP is a higher level than high flow. However, the complication arises because the flow isn't like well-regulated as compared to the CPAP device. So it doesn't allow for any monitoring of delivered airway pressure. So there's always likely some degree of leak. And the reason I know all of this is because I've asked my respiratory therapist questions and questions and questions because I didn't get this in school. Just so you know, like this isn't something that like I took a course on in grad school. I just had to connect with my colleagues and learn. But the issue is we don't know 
what level of high flow is causing a CPAP effect. So when I say a CPAP effect, the point of a CPAP is to stint the airway open. That's the point of it. And so if the airway is stinted open, that means that if a baby is swallowing on those levels of support, there's a high, high, high risk that the baby is silently aspirating. And research has shown that when aspiration occurs in our fragile babies, that approximately 90% of the time it is silent. So that is that other complication. What about BiPAP? Because I know for a fact there's a hospital in my home state where they were like, the patient can be on BiPAP and you can still give them food. And they're talking about like babies in the PICU and the NICU. And the research studies out there said it was so horrible that they actually stopped the research study because of the increased risk of aspiration on BiPAP. And I was like, yes, let's not do that. So y'all don't do that in the NICU, correct? Like I'm not a crazy person for thinking that this is poo-pooed and frowned upon. No, but the issue, honestly, is that the research that supports it is done by doctors, by MDs. And so an MD is typically, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but typically um, an MD is going to support literature done by an MD over a speech pathologist. Yes! I believe the literature you're talking about is done by an SLP. There is an MD on the team, but... It's just such an issue because our very well-respected institutions across the country, but specifically in the East Coast, they are feeding on, from my understanding, they they do feed on CPAP because some of this research by physicians say it's okay. But this research also did not utilize babies or human beings. We were looking at um, baby lambs. Slight, slight craniofacial difference there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's the issue because doctors are reading research by doctors. And I, I imagine that they're presenting at large conferences in larger platforms about that. So it is a heated subject. And I also I like want to say, you know, I respect my physician colleagues and where they're, you know, where they're coming from. I'm not just trying to say my answer is the right answer. I think we have to have these conversations Like it doesn't feel good for me to have these conversations, but I'm always happy that I have had them. And I think as a clinician, you have to learn how to express your concerns without coming off as this is the right answer and we're doing this because at the end of the day, I'm not a provider in what I do. And my job is to support my colleagues, educate my colleagues, and number one, advocate for the people that I serve. And so I just wanted to make sure that I'm, you know, the world knows. Think I'm very thankful for the providers out there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sigh I heard from your soul, darling. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, so what you didn't know, everybody, is that we are now going to call you to be advocates. So lecture on the you and Annie up and start advocating. Oh my gosh. Uh. Your multidisciplinary team in the NICU, who, who are your go-to people? Who are your peeps? Mm, great question. So when I first started, I made a list of who was in my quote-unquote fan club and who was not on my fan club and who I needed to move over. I had one person, someone that I could talk to, one, out of, and I think it was like 25 to 30. And that's how hard it was. I literally had no one, honestly. And so if you're working in the NICU and you're navigating this, know that you're not alone and I hear you and I support you and I hug hugging you from afar for me. And what I did, what worked for me is, you know, forming relationships with leadership, nursing management, the nursing educator, the director of neonatology. So in the NICU and the NICU I work in, the physicians rotate. And so it's not the same doctor every day. Maybe it's the same doctor for three days or for a week, but then they rotate. There's a group of them. So which made it even harder because I had to get to know all of them. I had to get that inconsistency for me. I can always thought like that was hard for me. How can that's got to be even harder for the families, but that's just how, how it works. And the neonatal nurse practitioners also rotate. So get to know your nursing management, your nursing leadership, and connect with the director of the neonatology group, the director of the neonatal nurse practitioner group, because at the end of the day, typically those are the ones that are conveying the information to their team. But 
every NICU has their own medical director as well. So there's a director of the group and there's a medical director for the NICU. And then get to know your charge nurses. They are crucial because they're the gatekeepers. And then, you know, also your bedside nurses who are, I've gotten to know all of the team now and having these conversations. It reminds me of how hard my journey was, but you know, now we have baby showers together. We, I go to happy hours with them and I'm thankful for the journey that I've been on, but, and also get to know your respiratory therapist. I've learned a ton from them and they have a lot of knowledge and you guys need to be buddies because they're specialists in breathing, they're specialists in swallowing and those two can't live without the others. I get jealous because you can walk down the hall and they're right there, right? Like that's so cool to me because for the early intervention world, we it's so hard to track down the right doctor to talk to. But how did you bridge that gap? How did you start chiseling away to forge that interprofessional relationship? I mean, I don't know if I always made the right decisions. I just want to make sure you guys know that. Like I just tried. I think it's important to just try and learn from your experiences. I worked a ton, sometimes seven days a week. I had a schedule that I was only off for one day. And so like off on Tuesdays, off on Saturdays. And honestly, that's a sacrifice I had to make for the babies and families that I serve. It was a decision. And I don't think if if I didn't do that, I don't think this Nikki would be where it is today because I made myself present. I asked questions and I spoke up when it was appropriate to do so. I'm not just standing there listening. I would listen at times. You know, it's important to be able to to listen and know when it's appropriate time to speak and time to listen to others. But I, I made my voice heard and I made my presence known and I worked really hard to earn the respect. And earning respect is not by shouting. It's by speaking up and learning and listening and hearing other people's expertise, because at the, at the end of the day, all of us, right, we're doing this for the babies. I think I have to, you know, I, I had sometimes I, I tell myself, like I say, I had just have a just be moment with the babies that I just like will touch them and breathe and then proceed with what I need to do. So I'm more intentional and I have to do that with myself as well. Like just remind myself, we all got into this for a reason. Maybe we've lost sight of it because of life. But at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. And I think that's important to remember. As I'm sitting here cuddling dog because she's like, yes, checking in with yourself and checking in with your patient. Cuddle time. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, dog's name is actually dog. So yes. Um, I love it. <laughs> it's easy to remember. Oh, right? Um, do y'all get to collaborate or do you have the opportunity to collaborate with GI a lot? And how many of these patients, like, do you see, I mean, we get GERD is like, you know, the baby's spitting up. I can't tell you how many times patients have been like, or their parents have said, well, they're just a happy spitter. The doctor keeps saying they're a happy spitter. I'm like, well, you're a happy spitter with a failure to thrive diagnosis. So I'm a little concerned here about happy spitting with an FTT primary causal factor for me being in the door. But do you see a lot of GI workups in the NICU? Is that common? I will see it in the NICU I work in. It's like a consult model. So I'll, uh, that's another thing in the neonatal therapy. I do not work on a consult model. I have orders for every baby. That was another. What does the difference mean? Consult versus there? Well, yeah. Get, what, what language are you talking? Yeah. So many NICUs across the country continue to follow a consult model or rehab model, meaning that we are waiting for something to go wrong to need therapy services. You don't wait for a baby to have a feeding problem. You're trying, as a NICU therapist, we know that our goal is to try to decrease the probability that the baby's going to need any intervention post-discharge. That's why I'm in the NICU. Okay, so basically, when you work in the world of swallowing, you may have a little bit of righteous anger, but it's how you choose to funnel it for good. (laughs) There, continue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's true. Um... (laughs) In the NICU I work in, right, there's tons across the country. I don't get to communicate directly with GI. They're typically communicating with the provider, which would be the MD or the neonatal nurse practitioner regarding any consults they may or may not have. And where you said that they're a happy spitter, I 
think that is part of the communication breakdown or the educational confusion or that needs improvement with providers and swallowing. And like, it's a huge issue. It's like such a big issue and I'm going to advocate for it, but I know I can't change it on my own. I don't have, you know, I'm one person, but that's just a huge breakdown. Like our, our providers are not getting the education on swallowing. And additionally, this is another issue, but the reason that all of these babies are sometimes we are pressured to feed these babies on higher levels of respiratory support is because these providers and, you know, I often some of these providers, again, blanket statements are not healthy. I'm not trying to do that. But many of them assume that there's a window that these preterms must experience oral feeding or they'll miss that critical window, whatever that is, and never learn. And that critical window was written, I believe, by a pediatrician, Gazelle, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in the 60s, that said that there is a critical window that these babies have to learn how to eat. And, but that's like totally overlooking the fact that these babies have comorbidities or respiratory complications and saying it's just, it's dismissing that. So these providers are still being taught that they have to eat, take a bottle by 34 weeks. Like I had this conversation on Monday. We have Casey, it's, we have to nipple. We're about to be 34 weeks. We have to nipple. And but nipple means take the bottle or a breast. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like this, I need to like go to coffee with you. So also yeah. <laughs> the interact nerve system, the nervous system of the GI tract is not fully developed. I mean, they've got studies out about the way the esophagus is innervated. It's not until 34 to 35 that it's actually innervated to appropriately move the bolus through the esophagus. And there's other research out there that talks about how the enteric nerve system is not fully developed until they're full term plus three months. So that's one of the contributing factors to seeing so much GERD is that that nervous system, it's not fully formed yet. Like when you were talking about the brain growing like a third in size in the last five weeks when they're supposed to be in utero, those kids aren't cooked. They're not done. And yes, we need to take all of the GIs and all the neonatologists for coffees to have crucial conversations. Okay. So here's a potential way to address some of these issues. We have to reach out to these physicians. And how often do you hear of a speech pathologist putting in for a call for papers to one of those conferences? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Let's take a hard look at ourselves. If we want to engage in improved continuity of care for our patients, then sometimes you have to go to the mountain. We need to go to them. So when your state association, pediatrics association has a conference, put in for a call for papers, which is really funny because you're not actually presenting a paper. I don't know why they call it a call for papers. You're like presenting a lecture, but like whatever. But submit for that. Go educate reach out to them and talk to them about healthy swallowing development, transitioning to oral feeds, evolution in mastication, or the chew patterns, right? And while you are there sharing your knowledge and your passion, also seek to understand. Go to their conference and see the other courses and what they're talking about and the trends that are happening in the world. And you can do this with GI, I mean, this is a two-way street, but we also just can't sit back on our laurels and expect it to be addressed unless we're actually out there addressing it. When the Academy have their national conference, y'all should put in a call for papers and go and present. Yeah, we'll have to do that. I'm over here and my wheels are spinning. You are correct. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. If somebody is inspired to learn more about the NICU or if somebody is inspired to support the Dysphagia Outreach Project, how can they go about that? Go to our website, dysphagiaoutreach.org. We are always, always appreciative and looking for new sponsors as well. And your mom listening to this, please look us up. And I, I imagine that we can help you as well that's the goal is to support the babies and the families, but to the sponsors out there who support us, you know, presently, I know I spoke to Dr. Brown's medical, but I mean, because of them, we get to do what we do and it's, it's an honor. It really is. I mean, 
None of us get paid for this. It's a passion project. It's a work of love. And we just want to help people. And we're all very talented and we know what we're doing and we're forever students. I think we all share that quality that we're always, we're always learning. And, you know, I still have lots to learn, even though I think that I'm pretty good at what I do. I have lots to learn and I always want to keep that trait, but go to the stage outreach.org, navigate the website. And Michelle, thank you for giving us this platform to spread our message. You are incredible. You're a blessing to this community and you help more people than you probably realize. So thank you for giving us your gift and you are just changing the world and you're the only way that you can. So thank you. (laughs) As I ugly cry at my kitchen table. (laughs) I have been blessed to be able to shine the good Lord's light. And that is all that is, ma'am. So thank you. Okay. All right. So everybody go make a donation and seriously, thank you. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, For every registration with SpeechTherapyPD.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice, to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all.